Twelve days after Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, another congressional delegation makes its journey there, escalating tensions with China. Is the United States about to scrap the one China policy considered the basis of U.S.-China relations for the past half century? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we'll be talking with Tings Chak. Tings is a researcher at the Tricontinental Institute. She's a member of the Dongsheng News Collective. She's the author of the pamphlet, Serve the People, the Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. Tings, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We're doing great here. I know uh, it's a little bit later for you there, 12 hour time difference. So we really appreciate you joining us. Senator Edward Markey, the chairperson of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on East Asia and Pacific Affairs, took a five-person delegation to Taiwan just 12 days after Nancy Pelosi's visit, 12 days after what the Chinese called a strategic-level provocation that inaugurated all kinds of reciprocal recriminations from the Chinese side the end of communications, or at least the suspension of communications on a number of key areas, including defense, intelligence, narcotics, climate. And of course, China participated in live fire drills around Taiwan, demonstrating that it has the capacity, if need be, to blockade Taiwan. Anyway, 12 days after a strategic level provocation, another provocation, it's not in the news as much, but just talk about how this is registering in China. You're in Shanghai. How are the people in China, not just the government and the media, although we care about that, but how are people reacting? I mean, I think in many ways, as you said, this U.S. congressional delegation visit is seen as a, it didn't get as much attention as a Pelosi visit. It's seen as a sort of continuation of what's now very clear as the U.S. policy and strategy towards China in regards to Taiwan. And I mean, just taking us back to 12 days ago, you know, I, along with something like 87 million Chinese people are watching closely the flight tracker of Nancy Pelosi. And of course, she landed, she met with Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwan regional leader. She even got an award from Tsai Ing-wen, and then she left safely without a scratch. And as you already mentioned, Brian, the series of concrete measures were taken by the government. But one of the, I think, key things that it sparked among the Chinese people is a sense that, you know, a real affront to the question of territorial sovereignty around national sovereignty, around the basis really of U.S.-Chinese relations. And in many ways, this moment has, the rules of the game have shifted and that has been based on the provocations led by the U.S. The Chinese called the One China Policy, whereby the United States acknowledges that Taiwan is indeed a part of China. It's been part of China for many, many hundreds of years. 
It was stolen from China by Japanese colonialism in 1895, incorporated into the Japanese empire. It returned to China in 1945 when Japan was defeated at the end of World War II. You know, Taiwan is part of China. The U.S. acknowledged it in the Shanghai communique in 1972, reaffirmed it in the 1979 communique where Jimmy Carter, president then, met with Deng Xiaoping, reaffirmed again in the 1980s. And when I'm looking at press releases coming from the offices of Senator Markey, Congresswoman Pelosi, and many, many, many other members of Congress, it's quite clear that these people, the politicians in Congress, they absolutely do not believe in the one China policy. Pelosi talked about Taiwan as, and the United States as our two countries. I mean, this means that the guardrails, the essence of the or the core of the diplomatic relationship that was begun with Richard Nixon in 1972, it's not over officially, but it's kind of over. I mean, I think it's important you brought a little bit of that historical perspective and why this is such an emotional question, right? And this question of what would the reunification of Taiwan with the Chinese mainland following this one China policy and determined really by the people, Chinese people on both sides of the straits. But it's really part of this 200 year long process of uniting the country against a history of imperialism. I mean, I come from Hong Kong, which was also, you know, was ceded during the imperialist aggressions of the opium wars. And Taiwan is an unfinished history, you know, bringing back to 1895, as you mentioned. And remembering after World War II, according to the Cairo Declaration that was set out in the Potsdam Conference, that all territories that were stolen from China, which includes at that time, Taiwan was called Formosa, and also other regions like Manchuria would be returned and restored to China. So we're still seeing this historical legacy continuing today. But of course, as you said, this basis of normalization of Chinese-U.S. relations that is recognized by the entire world, pretty much, you know, and even since Pelosi's visit, we've had over 160 countries from around the world that represent 80% of the world's population that have reiterated their support of the One China policy and reiterated their support of the importance of, you know, protecting national territorial sovereignty, which clearly Pelosi's visit and now with the U.S. congressional delegation visit is violating. And I think one of the things you mentioned, I mean, we've been seeing these escalations over the last few months, just in June, we had the modifications, you know, to, I think it's called the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022. And in that, I mean, it's quite interesting to see the various changes that have been very significant and that slow shift in language, whether it's around changing the name to the Taiwan Representative Office or the active promotion of Taiwan's inclusion in international organizations and bodies, or even just the increasing of blatant increasing of arms sales and financing to the tune of $4.5 billion over the next four years to Taiwan. And it's interesting. I mean, in that you see the last, you know, what they call the titles, it says nothing in this act shall be construed as entailing restoration of diplomatic relations with Taiwan or altering the United States government position on Taiwan's international status. But I don't know if anyone in the world would agree by sending your number three person in power on a military aircraft to Taiwan is a non, non-escalation or not any kind of restoration of some kind of diplomatic relations with the island. And of course, now we're seeing that just continued as sort of the new normal with the congressional visit. 
Well, let's go back to that Taiwan Policy Act of 2022. Introduced in a bipartisan sponsorship, Bob Menendez, the Democrat in the Senate, and Lindsey Graham, Trump's buddy, Trump's golfing partner, they introduced it. They say in the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022 that when it comes to Taiwan, this is a quote, this is a quote from Senator Graham. When it comes to Taiwan, our response should be that we are for democracy and against communist aggression. And then it goes on in the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022 and says that the government, the current government, meaning the authorities in Taiwan today, are the legitimate representatives of the people in Taiwan. Now, if one reads that language, and this is language for those who are new to this, when you talk about the legitimate voice of or authority over a people, that means you have UN recognition. Like Taiwan, which called itself the Republic of China, was evicted from the United Nations in 1971 by a General Assembly vote. The United States, even as late as 1971, was trying to stop that from happening. The People's Republic of China, meaning mainland China, China, took its rightful seat at the United Nations and at the Security Council. And the U.S. acknowledges finally in 1972 that, yes, China is one. Taiwan is part of it. That the fate or status of Taiwan will be settled by the people on both sides of the strait. That's reaffirmed. And the U.S. says that Taiwan as part of China is part of China and that the legitimate government in China for all of China is the government at that time led by Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai, the People's Republic of China. Now the U.S. senators, both parties who seem to fight about everything else when it comes to domestic affairs, have agreed that China is no longer the legitimate voice of Taiwan, the legitimate representatives, that this belongs to the separatist forces in Taiwan. I mean, that's pretty big. Absolutely. I mean, this has been undisputed for, as you already mentioned, for 50 years by, you know, both sides and China and the U.S., and also both sides of the Taiwan Straits and also on any kind of basis of international recognition of national sovereignty. So this is undisputed and U.S. has gone ahead again. We know this is how the U.S. acts unilaterally to basically defy what is any kind of international norm or bilateral agreements and crossing what is a very, very clear red line as established by these international norms. And I think one of the things that's important you raise around the statement of, you know, upholding this democracy against the big bad communist PRC. I mean, this is something not quite new, right? I mean, Taiwan was very much constructed really as a pawn for the last decades or really the last century of imperialism, first of Japanese imperialism, but more recently in the last decades of U.S. imperialism. I mean, I sometimes think it's interesting that Taiwan has, has been seen as this bastion of democracy, which for the vast majority of its short sort of more recent history was a highly repressive dictatorship ruled under at least three decades of martial law, you know, oversaw one of the most bloody massacres in 1947, you know, the February incident, and only actually saw its first democratically elected local leader in 1996. So I think that's also, you know, we have to put that in historical perspective of what the last decades mean for an island that has been 
effectively part of China for at least 700 years in terms of the first early recorded mass migrations of people from the mainland to the island, but really a part of a 5,000 year long history. But what I think is interesting also about this 2022 Taiwan Policy Act is that there's also a point talking about, and they don't even sort of try to hide it, right? One point is about, oh, using and establishing relations or exchanges for training U.S. officials so that they can also be more effective in sharing and spreading U.S. interests and values in the Indo-Pacific region. I mean, this reminds me a lot of just in recent past when we thought about, you know, why the 72 reestablishment of relationships between China and the U.S. was so key and why those communiques have to be upheld. I mean, right now we're seeing a, a huge decay of those agreements. It's because prior to that and during the Vietnam War, the U.S. had up to 30,000 troops stationed on the island. I mean, Taiwan was a de facto occupied territory of the U.S. You know, it had nuclear arms basically pointing towards the mainland of China. And now, you know, we're seeing sort of a a revival of this provocation again, or this use of the island as a pawn in its geopolitical ambitions. So I think we're headed for a very dangerous moment. And I think the U.S. is provoking and trying to move towards war. And one of the things that I think As I mentioned, you know, sitting there watching the flight path like millions of people around the world of Pelosi's visit, there were many people who were wondering what we're on the brink and we still are on the brink of World War Three. And sometimes like people were wondering, ah, well, you know, would the PLA shoot down Pelosi's plane? Why didn't it act more, you know, like, I don't know more strongly in that moment, you know, what was going to happen with that. But in some ways, I think maybe the sort of restraint that we have been seeing, relative restraint by the Chinese government is something that will, you know, hopefully protect the interests of the rest of us in the world. Yeah, indeed. I mean, restraint doesn't mean weakness. Restraint might mean sagacity, might mean being wise, making a correct decision rather than playing into the hands of those who want to create an actual war crisis with China. I mean, there's a big section of the U.S. foreign policy establishment that absolutely believes that war is coming with China and that it's better to get it over with sooner because China is just going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. Why not have the war now somewhere else, not on American territory, maybe in Asia? You know, that's the preferred course for America. Let All the bleeding and suffering happens somewhere else. And the U.S. is stronger now than it will be relatively in two or three decades. So the Chinese, I think, were very wise. They called attention to the flagrant, strategic, provocative character of Pelosi's visit. They said it was unacceptable. And yet they didn't appear as like eager for war because, of course, China's not eager for war. China is, in fact, eager for its own development. And when you think things about the history that you're talking about, the fact that China was dismembered in what was called the century of humiliation, literally parts of China snatched from it. Hong Kong taken where you were born, taken from China because the Chinese people resisted the importation of opium, which would lead to millions of Chinese people becoming addicted to opium, which British imperialism and Queen Victoria demanded of China so as to finance Britain's cruel colonial policy in India. I mean, 
you know, nowadays everything is dressed up as a fight for democracy. But when China was dismembered, there wasn't any talk about democracy. It was just like, we're stronger than you and we can do this to you and we're going to do it to you and you can't do anything about it. And so here we are, the sort of forlorn imperialists yearning for the yesteryear. And China's not falling for it and China's not going back, but China is step by step reunifying the country. And I want to just ask you, since you mentioned Hong Kong, I mean, during all this talk about democracy for Taiwan or Hong Kong, things, when did Hong Kong have any elections or any democratic rights under British colonialism? I'm just not aware of it. Maybe I missed something. Yeah, I, I also missed something in this 156 years of colonialism. Where were these rights and freedoms afforded to, you know, the vast majority of Chinese people living in Hong Kong, on both on the island, the Kowloon side and the new territories? I mean, some of the only concessions that we might have seen in the 70s and 80s in terms of just opening some of the social welfare programs was really a response to the strong anti-colonial movement that was really organized on both sides, from mainland and in Hong Kong, most notably in the 1967 uprisings against British colonialism. But of course, British colonialism comes out as being, you know, gets to take the cake in the sense of giving some concessions to the people. But this is also, I mean, in some ways, it's very clear to the Chinese people, these hypocrisies these kind of provocations, you know, bringing back the paper tiger, if you will, of Mao's era. At the same time, the interests of the Chinese people is around a process of reunification determined by the Chinese people. And so in a way, there's a sort of U.S. arrogance, and I think highlighted by Pelosi's visit, that that would provoke a response or the worst of responses from China is really short-term thinking because China isn't thinking in the short term. This is part of a, a centuries-long process of reunification. And sure as hell, it's not going to be determined by the U.S. And in terms of that restraint, I think it is about that. But at the same time, it's not to be confused with, you know, is this too soft? Or is China unwilling or unable to fight the U.S.? I mean, this is not the period of 1842. China is a much stronger country today, economically, socially, politically, and technologically in many ways. So it's not about uh, kind of recreation of that moment. And in many ways, I think China's response needs to be determined and needs to be taken as a strategic response. And in some ways, I think with the U.S. congressional visit helps the Chinese people understand that this is a strategic attitude that the Chinese government is taking. Right. Nancy Pelosi is worth about $200 million. I don't know how much Senator Markey's worth. They're all millionaires. I mean, the U.S. Senate is called the Millionaires Club, and most of the U.S. Congress are millionaires. And when I say millionaires, I don't mean just a million or two million. I'm talking about people with real, real money. And, you know, U.S. taxpayers, things are actually paying for these congressional trips that stir up, you know, like the possible confrontation with China. So here you have rich people in America pretending to be the representatives of the American working class or the American middle class or the American poor doing a very bad job at pretending. But they go as the representatives of our democracy to Taiwan, flagrantly, provocatively sort of waving a red flag, so to speak, in front of China. And at the same time, the American taxpayers, as I said, pay for it. 
Meanwhile, the U.S. Congress does nothing. I mean, they have absolute gridlock. The Republicans and Democrats can agree about confrontation with China, but, you know, there are 70,000 crumbling bridges. That's according to the Engineers Association that deals with bridges. 70,000 bridges that need repair. None of that's happening. The U.S. doesn't build any high-speed trains. The number of people going to college, the number of people getting degrees in advanced science, that's diminishing, not increasing. The number of people who are in bankruptcy because they can't pay a doctor's bill is soaring. One out of every two bankruptcies in America is because people can't pay their doctor's bills. I mean, so you have this paralysis, gridlock, and yet the U.S. says, oh, we're going to go fight China somewhere else. Meanwhile, things, China, while it's could easily be provoked and is showing strength and saying, look, we're willing to fight to the end, as the defense minister said, if anybody really wants to change the status of Taiwan. China is actually focused on helping China and the Chinese people rise. And I think one of the themes of this show is that all of these provocations by the U.S., yes, they make the world dangerous. Wars could happen, even wars by accident. But I don't think they're going to do anything to impede China's growth. And I'd like to go over some of the statistics, some of the facts, again, for our American audience that only hears terrible things about China, you know, hate China, fear China, et cetera, et cetera. But just let's talk about what China's actually doing outside of all of this publicity. I mean, I think before going into that, I think it what Taiwan represents for us is really a display of the fragility of U.S. imperialism. I mean, the fragility of U.S. imperialism is that it is unable to resolve the question of its own people. You know, everything that you've named that is being faced by the people in the U.S. And in some ways, it's this kind of logic of if you can't beat them rather than join them, I think just bomb them or provoke them until, you know, there's a war that started. I feel like that's more or less how I would summarize the U.S. foreign policy. And so in many ways, this containment of China is via Taiwan. It's very much a pawn in that. And whether it's economic rise or the productive capacity, not just to become the factory of the world of, you know, tennis shoes or something like that, but also in the high technology areas of artificial intelligence and what have we seen with 5G and Huawei, right? But I think it's important, and, and I wanted to point to some specific things and let the kind of facts speak for themselves. The last issue of News on China, every week the collective of Dongsheng puts together, summarizes the top 10 stories that we read on a variety of topics related to China. And there are three really key points, and I think that says a little bit about what's happening. So that looks at, you know, economically, socially, and technologically. So for example, on the Fortune Global 500 list, which is not necessarily our, all of our friends on that list, but it's a measure of something. For the first time last year, Chinese companies' revenues actually surpassed U.S. companies. But what's interesting in that is not just about how much these companies are profiting and that, but it does speak to a kind of economic competition or a level that China is reaching in terms of contesting U.S. hegemony in areas that it's never been contested in and certainly hasn't even been contested since the fall of the Soviet Union. It's basically been, yeah, an uncontested unipolar unilateral power for the last 30 years. One of the interesting things about this report that just came out around Fortune Global 500 is that the vast majority of the Chinese companies on that list are actually state-owned companies, whether it's fully state-owned or majority state-owned. 
And so we're looking at majority, so 87 out of 145 Chinese companies. But on that list, only three U.S. companies are state-owned, either majority or fully. I think this says a lot about the nature of uh, the public sphere in China is completely different. And a second thing I think quite interesting, and afterwards we can maybe discuss a little bit about what these kinds of data points mean, is that China overtook the U.S. for the first time in the number of most cited scientific papers. And maybe I'll just break it down in a second what that means. Of course, like patents or other scientific or research areas, we're looking at not only the quantity of research produced or papers produced, but it's also about the quality. And for scientific papers, that's the amount of citations. So we've been following this really closely in the last three years, and it's quite interesting, is that two years ago, in 2020, China exceeded the U.S. in the quantity of papers, so just the absolute numbers of papers produced. So that's just a lot of scientific production, and a lot of investment, not only in, in the state schools, or but also the anyways, across the sectors. In 2021, China topped the list of the 10% most cited papers. And then this year was China topping the top 1% most cited areas. And so top 1% means, you know, people around the world are referencing the science being produced. This is also in the areas of, you know, quantum technology, artificial intelligence, kind of crucial fields that we're seeing as like kind of the technological battlefield in this moment, but also in the advancement of science, you know, for the world. So that is quite a large, I think, success or kind of a, a measure of what China is representing as the U.S. is in decline. And I think the final one I want to bring, which is probably one of the most important ones, is a comparison of life expectancy between China and the U.S. And so last year was the first time that Chinese life expectancy surpassed that of the U.S. So now it's sitting at 78.2 in China and then 76.6 in the U.S. In fact, because of covid and the million deaths or plus deaths in the U.S. that actually took a toll on the U.S. life expectancy. I mean, that's quite shocking to see, to think about, you know, it actually shaved off a couple of years on the life expectancy. And that was seen as the largest decline since World War II. And I think that's something for us to think about what is sort of happened in the last sort of 70 or so years and with the rise of China and establishment of the People's Republic of China, and also what has happened with the decline of the U.S. And just as to not go on too much about this point, I think it's quite interesting to note is that as the same starting point in 1949 was when the PRC was founded, the average life expectancy was 35 years. You know, this is obviously coming off the heels of the century of humiliation and the huge plunders, but also the highly underdeveloped country that China was. In the U.S., in the same year, the life expectancy was 68 already. It had already reached 68 in 1949. So if we're fast forwarding now, 70 something odd years later, an average Chinese person has gained 43 years in their lifetime, has more than doubled their life expectancy. Average person in the U.S. has increased only eight years. And we're actually now seeing a decline. I mean, this is something I think very fundamental to us understand that it's not just about the economic rise. It's not just about the technological rise. It's also about the social aspect. 
And I think all that sort of background you gave about what is really happening in the United States can be really represented in the question of life expectancy. What is more essential to human rights or how we think about, you know, access to healthcare, education, you know, women's health, et cetera, if not about life expectancy. So that was quite shocking to see. And I think it says a lot about why Taiwan is happening and why the containment of China seems so necessary for a U.S. in decline. No, I'm I'm so happy you went over some of the facts there. China's also has shifted with its economic model during the past 40 years, since the opening up reforms in the late 1970s. I mean, there was rapid, tumultuous, dynamic economic growth that was taking place in China, partly as a consequence of massive foreign direct investment in the country, FDI. And yes, China grew very spectacularly, but so did pollution, smogged cities, et cetera, et cetera. And then China, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, has attempted to rebalance the economic model, saying it's not just growth, growth, growth. It's also a particular kind of growth and also growth not for a few, but a growth for all. The idea of common prosperity, your book that you worked on about how China prioritized, it wasn't just with Xi Jinping. It came with earlier leaderships as well, but certainly was a priority for the Xi Jinping leadership to elevate or bring out of extreme poverty 850 million people in China. These are huge social strides. So it's not just growth. It's not just aggregate growth. It's about a planned approach towards growth. And I want to have you, if you don't mind, just talk about how some of those changes have taken place in China. Because right now in the United States, things, as you are probably aware, the main struggle in Congress for the last few years has been to make sure that capitalist corporations are no longer imposed on by emission regulations, for instance. I mean, that was a priority for Trump. And it's still a priority. And you see all sorts of attacks on clean water, clean air. This is a big assault by the ultra-right. Meanwhile, the people who are not so-called ultra-light like Nancy Pelosi or Markey, the liberals, instead of fighting back against the right-wing attacks, they're actually confronting China. That's their priority. But anyway, let's talk about the idea of growth and sort of a as it's been modulated and shifted and changed over the last decade or two. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question. I just want to make a little side note because you mentioned about the importance of foreign direct investment in China's development, especially since the 1980s onwards. But since we just recently got the you know first quarter economic data from China, I think one of the things that's quite interesting, despite all the discussions of decoupling, you know, led by the U.S. since the the Trump era trade war, what we're actually seeing is a consistent increasing increase in foreign direct investment in China. And just as a side note, you know, the U.S. increased foreign direct investment in China by 26 percent compared to the year before this year alone. So I think there's a lot of things that we, you know, how actual capital works and then how politics actually works as well. But I mean, I think going back to the question of how we understand growth, I mean, there's no doubt that to be able to sustain on an average 9 percent GDP growth per year is something quite phenomenal that hasn't happened in history. And China has been able to, I mean, especially in the moment pre-COVID, even though, you know, the economic growth is slowing, 
has really reached highs that has never been seen. At the same time, huge costs. And that's very known to any average Chinese person. And what we've seen, particularly in the last 10 years, I mean, President Xi Jinping came into power in, in 2013, is a kind of reversal or a focus on some of the, let's say, the most extreme aspects or what is the most unregulated parts of capitalist capital growth. And we've seen it in a few areas. One of them, and I'm sure many of your listeners and viewers will know about, is what's happened with big tech in China, most notably with Ant Financial, or what's better known as, as Alibaba and the rest of the world. When it was about to launch its largest IPO, initial public offering on the Hong Kong and Shanghai stock exchanges. It was supposed to be the largest IPO of history of capitalism, you know. And on the eve of that, just about a week before, the Chinese government comes in and says, no, we're going to pause it. I think there is some, not I, but speaking as the government, but the government came in thinking that, you know, there's some suspicious things happening in there. And of course, later on, along um, monopolistic grounds, huge fines, a huge scaling back of control of this company. And a few things were noted on there. One of the things is that this company, because it deals with online digital transactions, was starting to act like a bank without following the rules of being a bank. So that was a big no-no for China. The huge amounts of data that it was owning over the people. And we know that data is a big question for all of us in terms of piracy rights and consumer rights and a variety of things. So right now that has launched a huge discussion on who owns data. Should data be a commodity that can be traded and profited off of? Should data actually be a public good and managed and controlled by the public sector in the interests of people? So this is quite a huge and bold act, you know, to kind of confront the excesses of capital in this way. But since then, we've seen many of these big tech companies in China being really confronted on these grounds of monopolistic practices, practices that are threatening the security of individuals and their rights, and also profiting and, and really preying off of people. So that's one area that we've been seeing it. We've been seeing it in other areas such as education. The Ministry of Education famously said last year was that the education sector had been hijacked by capital. And soon after that, we saw huge measures specifically around the most privatized and profited parts of the education sector, which is the private tutoring industry, many of which were actually funded or have their stocks and, you know, U.S. stock exchanges, et cetera. So, yeah, the government stepped in and says, okay, this, you know, $150 billion industry can no longer be a for-profit business. Education cannot be for-profit. So that was one of the things that we saw. Now, it's a huge question about housing. Housing is a very complicated question right now with highly indebted real estate developers, nearly default companies, of course, most famously Evergrande. And as much as, you know, everyone in the West was trying to, you know, call this will be the Lehman Brothers of China, it just has not happened because the government has a lot of actually mechanisms without fully sort of nationalizing or or making a private company to state-owned company to control and regulate the markets. But one of the big things that particularly under Xi, the government has been talking about is that housing is for living in, not for speculation. And so what we're going to be seeing, I think, in the next year, 
and some of these measures of how to regulate and level off the housing crisis right now is going to be key. But I think the principle and that sort of mantra is quite key. Housing is for living, not for speculation. China is ruled by the political party in power is the Communist Party. And Marx and Engels, when they were writing about communism and scientific socialism, one of the first drafts of the Communist Manifesto, which was drafted by Engels right before the manifesto was mainly written by Marx, he identifies the goal of communists is to abolish private property. In other words, to have property be available for everyone, meaning private property is the ability to exclude and common property is the model based on inclusion. So obviously when China had its revolution and the average life expectancy was 36 years or 35 years, and perhaps a million Chinese people were starving to death every year as a consequence of colonialism and imperialism and underdevelopment, the main goal of the government in China led by the Communist Party was to develop China. So it was a communist party with a communist perspective they never abandoned the Communist Manifesto or the draft versions of the Communist Credos written by Engels ahead of time. But the point of the revolution at that moment was not really full communism. It was to lift the people up out of dire poverty. And in other words, the social and economic task had to be conditioned based on the reality of China. And I think that was true about the Soviet Union when the Russian Revolution happened. It was true about Cuba in 1959. So it's not like a prescribed utopian scheme. There has to be economic and social development. And the Chinese have obviously gone through different stages of their development. With the passing of Mao in the mid-1970s, the opening up the development of what the Chinese later called socialism with Chinese characteristics, there was this hybrid of a private market, foreign direct investment, meaning from foreign capitalists, and at the same time, state planning. And you can see things over the decades, anyone who's paying attention, that there's a bit of a tug of war over what gets priority. And also, if one aspect of the economic model is prioritized, say growth especially in the early stages, it can crowd out some of the other social goals of the revolution because the revolution can't do everything. We're not, we don't live in a utopia. China is not heaven on earth. Just that piece of earth that was sort of liberated from the hell of capitalism and imperialism in 1949. And I want to talk about Xi Jinping's leadership in particular because a Congress is coming up. Xi has been in charge of the party for almost 10 years, the themes of common prosperity, the themes of uh, growth that takes care of the interior parts of the country, not simply the coast. The idea of sort of using this economic model, sticking with the economic model, but tweaking it or pulling it or tugging it in a way that it also reaffirms the socialist aspirations of the Chinese project. I want to talk about that because that, of course, has been a point of huge controversy within the left, and especially by people who aren't deriving their conclusions from facts, 
who are just sort of coming to big generalized assumptions about what's going on. And I think the profound ignorance about China outside of China really has contributed to this. But I want to talk about that because, and if you would talk a little bit about your book, which we've talked about before, but I think it's so important that the Chinese Communist Party's leadership, Communist Party leadership, which obviously is emphasizing growth in general, also is emphasizing ending poverty. That's something that you don't see in the West at all in terms of priorities. It would take Martin Luther King or the Poor People's Campaign or others outside the government to demand the rights of the impoverished and poor. Anyway, let's talk a little bit, if you could, about that. Yeah, I mean, going back to Marx and Engels, you know, sadly, they didn't leave the guidebook behind about how long the transition to communism would look like, you know, and how that resting of, you know, from private hands. But anyways, I think we're still very much in the early stages of that process, you know. I guess this is where, you know, we have Chinese patients or something like that. But joking aside, I think one of the things is important, I mean, maybe going back to just, you know, 1980s, and what did this reinsertion of capital and capitalist elements into the society mean? And why was that seen as a necessary stage to develop the productive forces quickly? That was very much a strategic analysis of concrete conditions, you know, and to understand that, yes, the FDI was absolutely necessary, as was education and technology from the global north and an active seeking of that knowledge and bringing that back. So technology transfer and knowledge transfer was a big part, not just the money itself. At the same time, there was a clear strategy around what was called keeping the big, letting go of the small. So what were the areas that could be opened up to private capital and what areas, strategic areas like energy, for example, would remain in the hands of the public sector? And I don't think it's even though the public sector did diminish significantly, and today the private sector is the largest sort of employer of Chinese people, when I was giving that number about the Fortune 500 top companies, you know, it's not an accident that the majority of those are still state-owned companies fully or in part. So I think that's something important to remember. And also how then China has a kind of larger set a toolbox, right, to be able to respond to different social and economic crises that like we're talking about with housing. But back to sort of what common prosperity is and how that's linked to the poverty initiative. One of the, you know, big sort of shocking numbers, and this is something, you know, from the World Bank to the United Nations has really celebrated China on, is the uplifting of 850 million people from extreme poverty since the 1980s. And the vast majority of those people were lifted with this period of economic growth that happened since the 80s. But of course, as we've already mentioned, you know, inequality did increase, not only between, you know, urban and the rural poor, not only between regions, for example, the more developed eastern part of the country that was more industrialized and still is compared to the central and western areas. It created an unequal and uneven development, which was also seen as part of the necessity of the moment. The strategy was to focus on certain regions. And then the idea was that then those regions would help lift up the poor or lesser developed ones. And what we saw with the last period of the poverty alleviation or the poverty eradication campaign under Xi Jinping the last 10 years called the targeted poverty alleviation was specifically that it needed a much more focused approach to look at the remaining 100 million 
poor people, extremely poor people in the countryside, in the more remote areas, in the areas where that larger generalized economic growth did not. And so it was really fascinating. And we had a great chance to be able to visit and talk to people who were members of the party, people who were peasants, women in local women's organizations, local leaders, youth, and be able to understand some of the experiences in the countryside. And what I think is impressive is the capacity of the party still being a communist party to mobilize its own members and its own cadre and send them to the countryside. First, to figure out who were the poor. Statistics is not going to help you identify where the poor are and where they live, what their needs are, and what is the plan to get them out of poverty. Unfortunately, a statistical method just doesn't work. So it literally was sending 800,000 cadre knocking on the doors and figuring out individual households. What were their needs? What were their incomes? What were the education levels? How many cows did they have? Any health issues? You know, whose aunt is unemployed? Whose kid has a learning disability? These kinds of things and gathering that into a plan per family. And then what happened is after that sort of initial survey of trying to figure out who are this 100 million people that were identified as being still extremely poor, it was actually sending millions of cadres to live in the countryside for years at a time to work with families, usually just one cadre with maybe five families that then connect with the local leaders to form you know, support teams. And anyone who's been an organizer who's done any kind of community organizing work, that's like really at the grassroots level. It's responding to the needs of the people and being present in the communities. And that really also, I think, created a shift around a building of trust of the everyday people, especially in the countryside, with the party. Because during many years and many decades of the rapid economic growth, that kind of work was actually deprioritized in the party. So this was an important moment of kind of reinserting the party back into the grassroots areas. And so what we can understand, what is now called common prosperity, is the logical sort of next step of how to address questions like inequality. How do we address what's called the three mountains faced by Chinese people, which is education, health, and housing? What is the next step around, for example, relative poverty? Now that you know extreme poverty has been eliminated, what is the next level to eventually abolish poverty for the entire country? So common prosperity is a bit of a vision that kind of, I would say, is a sort of next step beyond this amazing feat, but it's not an end goal to just eradicate extreme poverty in the country. So interesting, not a cash handout plan. That's right. I mean, a multifaceted, multi-tiered, multi-decade long plan because poverty is complex and the social problems of poor people are complex. And it really says a lot about what China's done and is doing. I, I want to really encourage our audience to get your book. It's called Serve the People, The Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. People should read the book. It's an easy to read book. And, you know, when you think about coming out of poverty as a, as a human right, as a basic human right, not to live short, miserable, impoverished lives because of social conditions that you inherited as a family, but to come out of that, like this fundamental human achievement, which has to be celebrated, but it is never even mentioned in the American Western media. 
I mean, it's never mentioned. You know, when you think about 850 million people coming out of extreme poverty, the population in the United States is 330 million. So take the United States population, everybody, double that number, say that number of people were living with less than $2 a day, which I believe is the UN definition of extreme poverty, and then lifting that size of the human family out of poverty, a huge achievement. I mean, China has 1.4 billion people. I think that's one out of every five humans in the world is Chinese. And that's a big part of that population. And again, Ting's the fact that it could happen, and it's not disputed. I mean, I've looked through the media. Is this made up? Is this Chinese communist propaganda? Is this all hoopla? Nobody says that. Nobody disputes the factual accuracy of this, and yet it rarely gets any mention, except, of course, by you and Dengsheng News and you know the researchers and writers who are trying to break through the media blockade on China, which, I, again, there's all kinds of blockades. We think of economic blockades, military blockades. The information blockade, which maintains enforced ignorance about China, is perhaps the greatest evil of them all because that deprives the American people in particular of making smart decisions. Anyway, again, I want to just emphasize what an important achievement it really is. I mean, I think it's important, not only for the Chinese people, and I, I'm glad you brought it back to the sort of understanding the scale. You know, in the last 40 years, the reduction of poverty in China is equivalent to 76% of the world's poverty reduction. That's to say 76% of the world's poverty reduction was made in China. So it was a huge contribution to actually humankind. And I think there's a big shame, exactly what you said about the media blockade and the misinformation and the outright censorship. And I think it does a disservice for anyone from the left to not access information about anything to do with China, including some of the lessons. I mean, I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture that everything's perfect and there's no contradictions and class struggle has been abolished in China and all that, but it'd be I think a little bit naive and ashamed to think that, you know, a country of 1.4 billion people doesn't have anything to share or teach or be of interest to those of us who care about humanity. And I, I want to just return to the point about, which is important about the poverty initiative, not being a cash transfer scheme that we see in so many places. And it doesn't address, and why this has failed in many countries, doesn't address the root causes of poverty. And so in the Chinese program, they use the poverty line actually higher than the World Bank poverty line of $1.9. In China, it's $2.3. But that's just the first level. Then it has to have two assurances. The assurances are being that you have food and you're fed. You have to meet that category. Then there's the three guarantees. The three guarantees are you have access to free and mandatory education. In China, it's nine years. You have access to basic medical care, and you also have access to housing that is safe. There's all sorts of ways of measuring whether it's safe, but with running water, potable water, and electricity. And only when you put that bundle of necessities together will someone be considered removed out of extreme poverty. And I think that's really essential because you have to create the conditions for someone to also lift themselves out of poverty and be able to sustain it. Because as you say, this is something that's intergenerational and very much inherited and passed down. So a cash injection is not going to work 
to resolve that question or, or resolve it in a sustainable kind of a, a multi-generational way. And I think in the same way, we see that's kind of how the Chinese government reacts. Look, right now, the world has suffered quite a lot economically because of COVID. And China more recently has you know, been dealing with these new outbreaks, and new variants, and it's testing the zero COVID policy. And we don't have to go into that very much. But I think what's interesting about the response is not just about injection of liquidity into the economy, uh, cash transfer to sort of meet the immediate economic crisis, give cash incentives, you know, consumer coupons, and, and that can resolve the kind of systemic economic problems. And one of the big ways is investing in infrastructure. So, for example, just a couple of months ago, China announced $44.7 billion in infrastructure projects, a new round of infrastructure projects. And that's going to be financed by bond sales and, and some interest subsidies. At the same time, as part of this is building what's called a super highway network of over 450 kilometers of highways connecting the whole country, in addition to what has already been built with high-speed railways. But this is actually not just for the sake of, you know, you made the point about the, you know, collapsing bridges in the U.S. is, of course, infrastructure is essential, but it's also a way that can create an employment and which is a big question right now, especially for young people. You know, the COVID has really hit the job sector, even in China, and a variety of ways that is just not the same mechanisms that we see in a lot of the Western and capitalist countries. And I think that kind of thinking is essential for us to understand China today. I was going to ask you a final question, but before we do that, I want to ask you one more. (laughs) I want to make a comment, actually, and then get your thoughts, because what you're talking about just reminded me of how Wuhan in the in Hubei province dealt with the issue of COVID when it was brand new. I'm talking about January, February 2020, when the rest of the world later had some sort of lead time to get ready. China had no lead time. So China shut down this whole, I believe they shut the whole province down, like 70 million people. And, you know, at that time, the U.S. said, well, that's a sign that China is like fascist or authoritarian or whatever that colorful rhetoric is to demonize China. But actually what China did was mobilize. It didn't only keep people at home and not only provided for them medically and in terms of their basic needs. But I was struck by the fact that young people's organizations mobilized that Doctors and nurses organizations from around China mobilized and came to Wuhan and came to Hubei province so that it wasn't just the government. It wasn't just the communist government that was taking actions. It was this mass mobilization so that people were tested. There was sequencing of the virus. People were stayed in their apartments. Yes, they were quarantined. Yes, it went on for a couple of months, but they didn't starve to death. At that same time or two months later, you know, 100 or 200,000 U.S. small businesses went broke. You know, 60 million workers in America lost their jobs, 62 million to be specific. And then you think about the difference in a form of governance, and it's not simply at the top. It's not simply like the U.S. has the capitalist Democratic Party and the capitalist Republican Party and China has a communist party. It's also that the model of government includes the mobilization of masses of people who become, in a way, self-acting. 
I mean, not self-acting as individuals, but as groups where it's not simply the government or government bureaucracies that are working. Anyway, let's talk about that real quick. And then I'm going to ask you my final question. Absolutely. And in many ways, I think we can't forget that at the same time that China was trying to kind of at the end of eradicating extreme poverty and finishing the campaign was at the time of COVID, especially this first wave of COVID. And in many ways, those two successful combat, particularly in 2020, was a test of the capacity to mobilize all sectors of society, right? And it's not just about the volunteers. It's also about mobilizing the private sector mobilizing the military, mobilizing social organizations, community organizations, in addition to the party organizations. Remembering that the party is an organization of 95 million members, but it also has a network of 5 million organizations that kind of go from the most grassroots, whether it's the kind of village groups to the women's groups to the youth group, all the way to the highest national levels. So all of that was sort of activated in both of these campaigns, the campaign to eradicate absolute poverty and the campaign to fight COVID. And even more recently in the waves of outbreaks we've seen, and of course, most notably in Shanghai, where I spent the whole lockdown in, it was really impressive to see in the early days, 50,000 volunteers, actually mostly elderly, above 60 or so, mobilizing. We had youth and students mobilizing. We had all of the community groups, something like 20,000 that are organized in the neighborhoods and the residential communities mobilized. Then we also had you know, tens of thousands of medical professionals from other provinces sending solidarity groups. We had also the military sending in logistics groups. And one of the things is, you know, there were many criticisms about how Shanghai was handled or how long it took for that COVID outbreak to take. But in talking to a lot of the young people, some of the disappointment wasn't that, you know, there was a malaise around the zero COVID question or that being locked in your house is, you know, just awful. I mean, those things, I mean, it's no fun for anyone. But one of the things is a lot of young people felt actually just disappointed that the government didn't act as quickly as they want to. There's an expectation and there's a been built on experience that the party and the government are there to serve the people. And that the fact that it wasn't resolved more quickly is just, that was a bit of the disappointment, which is actually interesting because in most parts of the world, at least in other places I've lived, there's an expectation that the government or the state isn't really there or present to serve the people's needs. Like that almost felt like a bit quaint or something like that to think about. So I think this says a lot about the capacity to mobilize across sectors of society. But on the other hand, it's about gaining the confidence and the trust of the people. And it's demonstrating these big campaigns and big challenges that were faced in the last two years. All right. Now is my last question. <laughs> How do people find you? How do people read the pamphlet, Serve the People, The Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China? How do people find out or subscribe to or read Dongsheng News, which has multiple newsletters, Chinese Voices, the economic, cultural, technology features. There's another newsletter about China in Africa. So how do people find you and find Dongsheng News? And also, if they want to read your pamphlet, again, it's being published by Tricontinental Institute, and you're a researcher there. And there are many, many other works there at Tricontinental. How do people get this information? How do they find you? Well, the, the study on poverty can be found at thetricontinental.org. And it's in a variety of languages. So feel free to 
go online and download it and share it and read it and share your feedback with us as well. And Dongsheng can be found at Dongsheng News, spelled D-O-N-G-S-H-E-N-G news.org. But we also use that handle across the social media. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, or on Telegram. And yeah, follow us. We're on YouTube as well. And in terms of what you mentioned already is now we have the weekly digests of news really kind of made compactly. So it's easy for you to sort of filter through some of the top stories of the week. That's called News on China. We have one that's called Chinese Voices that brings a couple of articles from Chinese thinkers, scholars, academics, and bring some of the debates because it's, I think, rarely heard or accessible in the West and the rest of the world, really. It's called Chinese Voices. And then most recently, we turned the China Africa newsletter into a podcast, which is co-hosted by two great comrades from Zambia and South Africa. So you can find that on your podcasting platforms. It's brand new and really wonderful because we know that Africa-China relation is essential for understanding geopolitics today. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me on Twitter as well, T underscore I-N-G-S. Things check. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.